Good morning. I'm about to head out on my day's journey. I am driving school bus today, so I will be on the road a lot of the day. And uh, I had when I when I talked about the second commandment, I had thought that it would be. Um, well, I never know how long it's going to be, but I had thought that it would be rather contained. I, I didn't envision it as being such a, a rich subject. And uh, the fact is, it is incredibly. Um, again, one of the uh, listening to listening to Jordan Peterson, and and again, I don't think I'm borrowing this from him. Um, although the thoughts that that I have, I certainly, I give a lot of I give a lot of honor to him for the methodology. Um, maybe maybe the greatest gift that that he gave me was um, the the courage to ask questions about my faith that I would not have asked. And uh, I would have not have asked them because I thought that they would make God uncomfortable. And I have asked them. And I have found that there is an answer that is satisfying that doesn't tear down the construct of God. Now, that's, that's important to me. I don't know, I, I don't want to go down endless rabbit trails, but this is a pretty central one. The, the concept of God as a rational, psychological construct is not an argument of God as a personal consciousness that cares about you. And the thing that is so amazing is that God, God can retain his value as a rational, um, widespread, rational, psychological construct um, and he can also prove himself to be a personal consciousness the way in which you do the one and the other are so totally different that comes back to the, the first set of podcasts I posted. And they are the podcasts called Religion for One. The, uh, the amazing thing, absolutely amazing thing, is that God doesn't want, I'm convinced, I, I, I am convinced that there is a personal consciousness to God that can connect with a personal individual. And that is not something that I have to prove to anyone else if I believe that personally. My belief or disbelief of that is personal. 
I can't tell you, you should believe in a God who cares about you. I can tell you merely that I believe in a God that is a power that optimizes life. And at that point, he doesn't differentiate himself too much from, from evolution, which is a power that optimizes life. I believe he is the domain of the unknown. I, I believe that he has these impersonal roles to play so that I don't go crazy. And, and those proofs of God I, I would share. I would, I would point out to others that, that not having them probably is dishonest. Okay, so, so pretending that every question has the why answered is, is simply, it's not true. You may think that everything is explained, but it's simply because you got tired of asking the question why. Because there were more questions to ask why. And so saying that isn't valid domain of God is is simply saying I just didn't I, I just got lazy. I answered enough questions to 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 tear down your image of God and and defend myself against religious people who say you ought to believe in God. And that was all I needed. It's like, well, maybe that isn't all you needed. Our society is finding out that maybe that isn't all you need. But what a freedom to not have to prove the personal side of God. The idea that he is a consciousness that cares about you, which may, which may be a lie. I, I, I cannot go to some um, objective place and prove that. I can't even go to a logical place and prove that. But I can go to points in my life that prove it to me beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, and you could say, well, that's, that's merely coincidence. Well, when you have a bunch of coincidences that pile up, and if you could pr prove that they were all coincidences, well, what does that mean? What is coincidence? Is that just another name for God? Is, is, is God the, the positive side of the coincidences? Well, the other thing I'd say is coincidences that are predictable aren't coincidences. So, you get what I, I hope you get what I'm saying. Is that, is that I, my confidence in God, that my whole point is that, that Jordan Peterson was the, the person who, who challenged me to go to a new level in asking God the questions about who he is and how the world is formed. And uh, I have found that the, the questions I refrained from asking God because I didn't want to put him on the spot were a very, I hope, silly type of arrogance. 
I hope they weren't harmful, but they were a form of arrogance. Okay, but so I, I give a lot of credit to Jordan Peterson. That's the short version of the first five minutes of this. And uh, I was just listening to his biblical series. And in his biblical series, he basically says, how can so much be packed into these, these tiny little stories? And, you know, he, he explains how a, a story has to be understandable and memorable for it to last over long periods of time. And even, even once you write it down, I mean, for somebody to act like, well, it, they wrote it down, they made it up and wrote it down and it became powerful, is, does not explain, because there's a lot of things that have been written down. A, a significant book is significant, especially when you look at how many books, maybe more care was taken in writing them down, but they're, they're, something emerges that says this is important so so however you see that i think that the the point he was making is that it's really hard maybe that maybe the concept is different but it's really hard not to begin to wonder are these in some way inspired and, and i feel that way about about these first two commands in the Ten Commandments. Now, the danger is, and, and kind of the reason that, that impels me, compels me to, to spend another segment on them, the, the, there's a danger that I might be imagining a, a depth of meaning that isn't there in the in, in, in a, for the writer. So, um, you, you could say, Jeremy, you're you're making this up. Moses thought of God. I mean, it says that he he was there. He was around God. Moses thought of a God as an embodied personality who got really mad at people who didn't worship him, and that explains the first three commands. This is a God who, who scared the bejeebers out of Moses, and Moses came down the mountain and said, Hey, don't you dare have any other gods. Don't make even don't don't, don't even make an idol to, to worship another god. Don't don't say his name. I mean, he's seriously means business. Well, yeah, right, fair enough. Except that, that that presumes that it actually happened, first of all. And if, if you don't think that he went up on the mountain and saw God, if you, if you find that suspicious, so you're, you would use the argument that it, it did happen and that undermines the depth of, of what's going on. Well, then it becomes, okay, well, then, then, then what was Moses? Moses was a, a charlatan from, from down to his core. And he told them this about this God. And, and that doesn't work. Um, you, you find that Moses 
everywhere along the way is a reluctant leader. I mean, he never wanted to do this. Well, then you have to say, well, they just made that part of the story to make him seem more sympathetic. He didn't want to, but it was forced upon him. And so he's this sophisticated charlatan. And, and on and on it goes, dissembling, dissembling this into, into some very base motive. And I, and I still don't really see how that necessarily w would benefit. Moses. Well, then you say, well, maybe he was just nuts. Well, maybe he was. <laughs> I guess that's one of the things is that many of the, the people who hang out on the edge of understanding our consciousness appear to people who have settled into the, to, to some status quo of understanding. They appear pretty crazy. Um, so, I think I think it, it, it's a much better explanation to say this is this is a very very rich part of the biblical text, full of meaning. But that still doesn't excuse me. I mean, it could be a deep text. And uh, I could be still impressing upon it my vision of depth. It would be, uh, I mean, it's like poetry in, in ninth grade English. And, uh, you know, it might be a great poet, but somebody who wants to be seen as a uh, lover of poetry might put an interpretation upon it which the poet never intended. And, and I could be doing that. How would I, how would I know that? Um, I, I think one of the best analysis is when you interpret something, does it does it open more doors or does it close more doors? If if you interpret something and it opens to you a whole new approach to another problem and it answers a question which you didn't even think you were asking and the, the interpretation keeps unfolding new meaning I think I think it becomes harder and harder to argue that 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 wasn't inherent in what was said and I will tell you that I think this is what many people mean practically when they aren't arguing theology this is what they mean by the inspiration of scripture is is they will and i'm not talking about sitting around in a, in a bible study group theorizing um because yeah you could chase rabbit trails on anything but i'm talking about people who have 
like applied a verse and, and some, some precept that is in the Bible, they have applied it to their life and they have found it, um, they found it very effective and they thought they'd sort of sucked it dry of all its meaning. And then suddenly it, it rises up and, and applies itself in a totally different way. But they had never thought of applying it and and they will they will come across these these ideas that, that seem to constantly open more doors, not close them. And that is what I would argue is going on um, here in these in these first two commands. That it's not me dragging in obscure references to make it mean more, but it is answers answers are implicit in there that I just never noticed before. And I'll tell you the biggest one. Okay, now first let, let me try to review. What what I believe is that the first commandment is is telling us that that God is not static. That God's position is in relation to knowledge. Um, he is God of the cause of life, roughly. Uh, there's so many ways to say it, but so so what God is is what was before everything that you know where it came from. So so you look at any phenomena in the world and you say, well, what was before that? And what was before that? And what was before that? And and the first commandment, which establishes the understanding of morality and God, says we're going to treat God as the thing that had nothing before it. He, he, God is the answer to the question of what had nothing before it. And the second command is there because of the understanding that this construct of God will ha, has with it an inherent difficulty. And that is that what you think might be God today, the domain of God may have a rational answer that some adventurous thinker comes up with. There, there may be a reason to your next why. And when that happens, if you have made a graven image of what you thought God was, well, then, then your God dies. And people don't like it when their God dies. So the, so the second command is, is a prohibition but it's not a prohibition based on don't do it. It is a prohibition based on the impossibility of doing it. If God is what you don't know, you can't draw a picture of him. So if you're drawing a picture, and I say him, I, I hope you won't be offended. I, I, I've explained it before. I, partly, it's, it's a habit of speech. Um, Secondly, it is, um, I, I think it is, it is God 
as he and nature as she. And, and so there's a point where I don't fight to not say it anymore. And I guess to, to call God an it is hard because it is what we use for animated, now unanimate objects. Okay, and so, I mean, we don't have a word for the super animated. Um, so anyway, God, <laughs> he, just put up with it if you don't mind or turn it off I mean that's that's always there you can just shut the podcast off don't sit and listen to it offended um, okay so, so but but God is what cannot you, you can't you can't draw a picture if you are drawing a picture it is obviously not the God and so the the, the second commandment is again has this nature of not being a prohibition so much as a, a description of reality. The description of reality that if you're picturing God, it's not God you are picturing. It is something by the very picturing of it and the nature of our intelligence and our consciousness, if you are picturing it, you are picturing something mortal. and and. God, in its construct, is deathless because there always is something before. And when you get to the something before that you have no way of knowing what it is, that is, that is where his domain is. So that is the, the, the summary of of the first two and, and and the thing that always bothered me because I, I will accept that the the sort of the heuristic version of the second commandment is hey quit making idols and quit spending your money and, and your sacrifices on on uh, these blocks of wood and these these poles out in the Astra Grove and, and whatever but one of the things that never made sense to me is where did idolatry come from? Because idolatry is widespread. The, the concept of, of taking something and worshiping it in a more than just symbolic way. But, but actually believing that this, this item is vested with some sort of power that transcends the, the, transcends the material world is so widespread that I, I cannot account for its evolution. Um, I guess technically evolution refers to the process of change. So I, let, let's correct that. I can't account. Maybe I can't account for its evolution. But what I can't account for is how it started. I can't account for its emergence. When did we start? I mean, basically, somebody came along to 
some farmer and said, hey, this looks like a bowling pin, but it's not a bowling pin. It's a god. And if you buy this god and sacrifice to this god, um, you'll have rain and your crops will grow. And that'll be a good thing. Now, it was not saying this. I mean, <laughs> seriously, in the environment of prosperity today, you probably could you probably could get someone to buy him, right? Put it on, uh, put it on Amazon, and you would have you'd have people who okay, but but this had to have emerged when prosperity was not the norm. This had to emerge when prosperity was the exception, not the rule. And that's that that amazes me. Because somebody who's who's scrabbling for enough food to uh, to live, their kids are dying off in great numbers. Look at maybe you could give them a bowling pin and claim it was a god. But to say um you're you're going to spend spend your resources on this? I, I just don't I don't find that credible. So if we're considering the emergence of the question of how it emerged, um I can imagine sort of a emergence of a talisman or a, a superstition. Um, I'm a fisherman, right? And so if, if you happen to get a strike while you were standing on one leg, scratching your ear, it's hard not to think that maybe somehow that mattered. And so I would assume that that was part of, part of human nature um, all along. And, and so if you did something unusual the day before it rained and then you would you would think that maybe that was something that that the the god which was the answer to the question of what caused the rain um, must have liked but I can't get from there to to the worship of idols the, the complete embodiment. I mean, I can, but I, it's a long step from there to the to the complete embodiment of that power in an item. Um, that, that the second. So so that's sort of the superstitious path. Um, I, I mean, you you could. But I just think that, that, that as it emerged, there'd be so many times when doing that didn't help. Uh, you know, so, I don't know, make up something. The day before, I mean, you're waiting for it to rain and you finally decide you have to, you have to uh, butcher chickens. And the one chicken gets away from you and the chicken runs away and you can't catch it. And uh, the, as soon as the chicken runs off into the woods, you, it starts to rain. 
and you think, oh, well, this is, this is, I'd be willing to give up a chicken to have rain. And uh, that's probably not accurate. <laughs> but, but you could say, okay, that superstition then could evolve into a embodied religion um, where you would worship the chicken or the god who eats chicken or something. But I think all of that assumes our perspective. It's hard for us to imagine how, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine the, the, the difficulty of sacrifice when we have so much prosperity. Okay, let's take the, take the core of sacrifice. Sacrifice is, is sacrificing the present for the future. And one of the most tangible examples of that would be watching your children starving and not eating the grain that you know you need for seeds the next year. I mean, maybe there's a point at which you say it's not worth it, but I mean, can you imagine? So, so maybe they aren't starving to death, but can you imagine your children being severely mal? nurtured while you are sitting on a bag of food. Wow. I mean, that, that, that sacrifice is not some casual thing. That was, a, that was a very hard lesson. So I can't really imagine this. this I mean, I totally get how something that you do Sort of the idea of a talisman is, is usually something small, but I, I can't, I do not think it leads to a coherent religion. Because I will tell you what, if you're going to let one of those chickens go instead of eating it when you are starving, it better produce rain every time, or that belief is not going to continue. And I know that you can say, well, people people don't let go of their beliefs very easily. And, and I, I understand that. But we're not talking about a belief that has been captured in your culture and in the stories you've learned and, and has molded the values of your society. I get how people would cling to a religion that wasn't really helping them simply because they needed to cling to something, but I cannot imagine how that religion emerges. I can't. But but the typical definitions, the typical explanations really I think are, are inadequate to explain how you would you would sacrifice to this this idol. How you would pay money, how you would organize how, how the, the people who made idols for a living would would get their start. The whole thing is based on people at a time and place where there isn't plenty. I mean, right, handing your God a little extra is nothing. But sacrificing to that God sacrificing to the 
to, to the idea that a god is embodied in a an object which you have in your home or even an object that you have in your home which represents something bigger but holding that object sacred seems to be not as simple as people make it. Okay, the, 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 the claim that many people would make is that there have always been people who use religion to prey upon the gullible. But, but that presumes that religion existed first and then it was bent to that you, you can't just show up, I don't think, with a, a fraud. People have to have seen something useful before you can show up with a, a load of bowling pins and tell people that bowling pins are your God. Now, I, I get that, that once that's established, once it's established, okay, you can take you can take what people accept as the, the revelation, the embodiment of their God, and you can try to cash in on it. I, I, I totally get that. But what I don't get is how that structure gains its power to begin with so that it can be usurped. I hope I'm making it clear. So, so by and large, I think it's a safe uh, uh, assumption, a safe uh, generalization to make, is that, that the holy people, people who made professional holy people, people who got their money from, from dispensing some sort of religious experience or some sort of religious teaching, I would say that they have never been the people who could get, I mean, they chose that route very often because the route of rising in the dominance hierarchy was closed to them for some reason, either by temperament or by by some frailty. Um, and, and so traditionally, I mean, if, if you look back in, in sort of English literature, um, the, the, the priests were sort of expected to be wimps, right? Because if you could go out and contend for a living, you did. But there was this, this sort of alternate pathway for people who didn't have that, and so that you could, you could use your learning and your claim that you had a, a special knowledge of God which you could then impose upon people. But that does not accommodate itself to the, to the rise of religion. All of that says that, that somehow religion was already in place and then it became a mechanism for certain kinds of people who had certain kinds of talents to, to use in some way to, to gain benefit for themselves. Or, or I guess you could say, no, they, I mean, I, I don't think it's arguable that that has happened. Um, I think even 
even religious men argue that it's happened. They just exempt themselves. So they'll say the others are doing that. And, and that may be no guarantee that there aren't some honest people who there may even be some, some profoundly religious people. Um, but none of that explains to me adequately how this arose, how this emerged. So, I, I mean, I can't come up with a, uh, a, an idea. So roughly, if, if I were trying to start a religion, I have to admit that I stole this from a PBS program called MathNet. It was like this, this takeoff of Dragnet that they had on this MathNet um, officers who would use math to solve these crimes. And it was kind of a kind of lame, but one episode just really, I've never forgotten it. And, and it's it's the idea, which I mean, I get how a person could use. So, roughly, if I wanted to bring about idolatry, I, I would, let's go with my bowling pin. I'd show up and I would say, this bowling pin, this bowling pin is a god. And this, this bowling pin will cause there to be adequate rain. So if, if every day you lay out um, lay out a, a gift before this bowling pin, it will rain. So I give out a hundred give mind give out a hundred bowling pins, and typically having rain is is more likely. I let's just assume it's over a broad area over several years. Um, Typically, pretty good chance that rain will come. And so let's say 75% of the people I give bowling pins to have a positive experience. Well, the next year or the next time I visit them, I just don't visit the people who had a bad experience, right? Why would I go to them? They're not going to believe me. So I go to the 75 people who... Um, who had a good experience, and I'm, I say, you know what, I, I've discovered something more. Not only is the bowling pin a god, this, uh, this colander is a god. And so, if you if you worship this colander, um, your your cows your cows will all um, your, your cows will all get bred back. Uh, again, usually a cow, I mean, to a, far, a farmer, that's an important thing, right? You, you don't want to feed a cow all year and only to find out that it, it isn't going to have a calf. But on the other hand, it's, it's usually going to happen. So let's say 75% of that 75% has a positive experience. I'm just going to ignore the others. So the next year, you know, this is a primitive society. I come with a wooden spoon and I say, this is the God. And if you, if you make your proper, proper respect for the wooden spoon and, and give it what it needs, um, the wooden spoon will make sure that you have, um, make sure that, that you have sons. 
because traditionally that was sons you could work them harder. So okay, well, I don't, or or whatever. Just say it. Have, you would get your choice of your your next child will be well. All right, that one should be 50-50. Okay, so now I have a group that is 50% of 75% of 75%. But they're starting to really, really believe me. And, and so we can go on. And, and I, I, can, I can place something else and, and take another you know, 50% of the 50% of the 75% of the 75%. But what will I have at the end? I will have a small group who absolutely believes that I know something about the supernatural. And a large group that I just ignore. But once again, that could explain the rise. And the reason I bring it up is kind of an obscure argument, but it doesn't rely on having a respect for religion to begin with. Somebody could, somebody could develop this out of the blue, and that's in fact the story that was on the episode of Matt. Um, somebody, somebody sent a pool of people predictions, and those predictions were all right, and they said. Okay, now that I've proven that I can predict the future, I will sell you the lottery number. Well, it turned out that that person was the 50% of the 50% of the 50% of the 50% of the 50%. And everyone else who had been, to whom he had been proven wrong just simply he ignored. But to this person, it looked like he had predicted a series of like seven things exactly right and was tempted to spend the money to buy the, the lottery numbers. Why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up because that would account for the emergence of a the idea of a holy man and of a, of a religion of, of idols, you know, so there's your bowling pin and your colander and your wooden spoon and your pie plate and whatever else, and, and you, you would honestly, honestly believe that, that they had power. The problem with that scenario is that it is, once again, the sophisticated preying upon the unsophisticated. And the whole idea that the, that, un, pray, that the sophisticated have always been preying upon the unsophisticated is the basis for postmodernism, roughly. Postmodernism is it basically says anything that looks like it's not chimpanzees tearing each other apart to get what they want. If there's anything that looks like it's not the law of the jungle, it is just the law of the jungle under a different guise. There is nothing but power. And so religion is using sophistication to deceive people to gain power. That's all there is, is power. Well, it seems to me the problem 
with that, among many other problems, is that you're you're basically claiming that the psychopath is the highest evolved form of the human. So it's no longer strength. It's not the strongest lion, but in the human sphere, it is the it is the sociopath. Now, the word psychopath and sociopath, as as I've been I've been puzzling about that. Um, Jordan Peterson never talks about sociopaths, and so I'm going to continue on. I'm actually going to take a break and, and continue on and look a little bit at the idea of a, of a psychopath, a sociopath, and this idea that that may be the highest form of human evolution. And then we'll get back to, to looking at where polytheism may have come from. And the answer, that, that the kind of elegant answer that you find in the second command. Um, but that will be a talk for another drive. So. Wish you well on your travels today. Happy trails, and we'll look forward to talking again.